Good morning, Providence Church. Greetings to you on this Sunday, the Lord's Day, the Sabbath. And what an encouragement to think that we're not alone in these times, but rather we have a family, a church family, uh, that we can rely on and uh, praise the Lord uh, with together. And just uh, thankful for each one of you. I know that it's been many weeks now uh, where we've been watching uh, church on a screen and that we don't want that to be normalized, but we're thankful for the technology. And I was reminded afresh of just uh, the circumstances we're in this week. I was listening to the uh, political commentator, Hugh Hewitt, uh, who was remarking on the conventions just how hard it is to watch one person uh, giving a monologue on a screen. And I, I do pray that uh, the encouragement that we would have in these services would be uh, only from the Lord, that we would uh, sing the words of truth, that we would study the Bible together, and we'd have a real sense uh, that Providence Church, despite these times in the multiple services, we're one church family, uh, that we have a mission in this time, in this place, and that we can fill that in a variety of ways. So I hope that those of you, again, many of you watching this for many weeks in a row, that you're encouraged in the faith, that you're carrying forward the mission of Jesus, encouraging others, uh, sharing your faith, and persevering. And uh, that's a wonderful thing, is there are onlookers who are anxious, and what an opportunity we have to show that we trust in Christ alone. Uh, in exciting news, uh, we're thankful we're a few weeks away from uh, going live with our new website. I'm very thankful for Jonathan Hooper and the team at Ooze Studio who has uh, just uh, worked tirelessly on this project and uh, what an asset that will be uh, as we're, we're further apart and that's the way we can best get information across. So look for that in the next couple of weeks. There'll be a number of new features on that. So new website, some good news there. As for plans this fall, again, we're always watching and these are subject to change, but the plan right now is to move back in the building uh, on October 11th. I know many watching this that doesn't pertain to you, but just so we're all on the same page, as you know, we've had these two outdoor services which are going very well. Uh, but on October 11th, uh, we'll make an attempt to move back in the building and having multiple services, spreading people out and, um, and requiring masks. So that's the, the tentative plan now. So a few more weeks outside than coming inside, but a lot can change as we know. But the point being, we're one church family. We want to move forward and follow Christ together. So these things being said, I'll turn it over to Pastor Ian, who will call us to worship.
to this God that is the reason that we reflect on scripture as a church together and what's nothing better than to look at the Psalms. We're in Psalm 115 and there are slides that uh, indicate when uh, I will read as the leader and then we can read all together where it says all. So let's reflect joyfully on scripture, the truth of God's word. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May he be blessed. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens. But the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. And brothers and sisters, the reason is that that is true is because the work of Christ is finished. That he has come, has made himself fully known, died on a cross resurrected from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father where he sits and reigns now. And so our response is to sing, to stand amazed at the marvelous work of the Son. So let's sing together to that end. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me a sinner can never clean I stand amazed 
family, if you would please join me in prayer. Father God, we thank you this morning for this new day and opportunity to worship you. As we begin fall and prepare to enter another season of response to the coronavirus, and our country grapples with a response to the recent racial unrest, and as we face the contentious season of political campaigning in front of us, all these events can seem overwhelming at times. At times like this, the wisdom found in your written word stands as a constant source of comfort and truth. Father God, in these times, we are especially drawn to the Psalms, where we can clearly see your eternal greatness and holiness, our weakness and daily need for you. And through the Psalms, we can find the grace and wisdom we seek and need to live each day to its fullest to bring you glory. Psalm 90 begins by stating that you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or even before you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. As we prepare our hearts for the study of your word today, let's take a moment to examine our consciences as Psalm 90 reminds us that you have sent, set our inequities before you and our secret sins stand in the light of your presence. Please join with me now in a brief moment of reflection as we think of the amazing gift of reconciliation made possible through the work of Jesus on the cross. Thank you. Psalm 90 closes by stating, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of your hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of your hands. As we begin a new school year in this time of uncertainty and plan church events for the upcoming year, Father God, please give us wisdom to continue to respond well to the coronavirus. Protect us and our families, especially our school-aged children, and I pray that we can look back on this season 
and clearly see how your hand of protection was upon us and how you directed our steps in these times. Also in these times, we pray for the international student ministry and the international students traveling from around the world to study here. Please keep them safe and allow our love for you and our love for them to overcome the challenges of social distancing so that they can experience you in a real way while they study here. And we ask all these things through the holy and precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. And now if you are able, please stand with me as I read the gospel. Uh, we're reading in Luke chapter 6, and I'm reading verse 27 to 36. And I'm reading from the ESV. And so this begins, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. As, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. This is the word of our Lord. Well, we're making our way through one of the four biographies of Jesus. And if you remember last week, Jesus gets up on a level place and delivers some of his most famous lines. And far from just being a nice piece of oration, that we remember last week that Jesus completely reverses normal human ethical behavior. That what we would expect, um, he does the exact opposite. You remember that Jesus, last time we looked at this, pronounces blessing upon those who are poor, hungry, weeping, and reviled. And then he gives a word of caution to those who are rich and full and laughing and popular. Say, so, wait a second, I'd much rather be rich and full and laughing and popular way more than being poor and hungry and crying and reviled. And yet Jesus makes this point. He says, you know what? If you don't have your eyes on the kingdom of God, and if you've not surrendered to me, he says, the son of God, uh, then everything is empty and there'll be no reward. Say it was a challenging teaching, but remember who he's speaking to. He's talking to his disciples that he's caused, called those, those who are to advance his mission, and this is what real discipleship looks like. Those who would really follow after Jesus and surrender their lives to him, this is how our lives are to look. We're not to be satisfied in material things and go about trying to be people pleasers, but rather we're to be committed to God's kingdom, to what he's done in Jesus. And in that passage that Steve just read, you saw that he keeps going. 
it wasn't just a one-off. But Jesus even takes it up a notch and challenges us even more with his great principle of love. In order to see, I think, how striking this is, I want to start in a way that I, I don't often do, and that is with a, a quote, a non-biblical quote. And this comes from a man named Sam Solomon. Sam was raised in a Muslim home. He studied Sharia law for 15 years and then converted uh, to following, to being a follower of the Lord Jesus and now is uh, doing ministry in the Middle East. And Sam Solomon would write this. He says, When I read the New Testament, what amazed and astounded me the most was the teaching on love, not only towards one's kin and kindred, but even towards one's enemies. It was so different from my training in Islam that it actually made me angry that someone could suggest something so obviously impossible. But as I continued reading, the reality of it entered my heart and changed my life. And I just want to harbor a moment there on Sam Solomon's words, this Muslim convert. You notice, I think, a number of things we need to tease out here as to how we approach this passage on love. First notice, how did Sam start learning about this? He read the New Testament. You know, I'm amazed how many times people will just say things. Well, you know, being a Christian, that Christianity, it's all, it's all for bigots, that it's a, a religion of hatred. You say, not so. That when we read what the Bible actually says, that we're not just repeating um, things that we hear from other places, but when those actually take the time to read it, what's going to strike you is how much the Bible talks about love. Uh, God's love and how his people are to love and that it's not just uh, how we toss around that word as we'll get to but a different kind of love so when we read the New Testament we dismiss the kind of cultural little slurs that Christianity is a hateful religion and what we're going to be struck with is the great love of the creator God and his mercy and how his followers are to reflect that kind of love of a different kind notice also that one of the things Sam says he says this is very different from his own religious tradition, that is Islam. But I press it a bit further. You know, a lot of weeks I'll talk about relativism. This is another thing you hear a lot about in 2020. You say, well, don't you know all the religions are the same? I mean, it's just kind of a theme and variation. There's nothing distinctive. I think in each week that we've been studying Luke's gospel, at the very least, we must, if we're intellectually honest, skeptical, you're watching this, but you're intellectually honest, you must say that Jesus is unlike anything found in the other world religions. And so Sam Solomon, again committed to Sharia law, he says this idea of love is not found uh, in the other major world religions. And so Jesus does do something distinct. We can't get by by just making these kind of uh, remarks about relativism and everything being the same. We must be more nuanced and see there's nothing else like this. Also notice what he says. He says that this command in Luke 6 is obviously impossible. Say, so there's no way, in, from all that we know about human nature, that anyone can love their enemies. This doesn't naturally come out of humans. You can go look at all the, the great arc of world history, right? You say, the one, we don't love our enemies well. That it's impossible, that it goes against nature, and consequently then, notice the other thing he says, is that it made me angry. Why did it make him angry? Because it's impossible. Jesus has set a standard here in this ethic that cannot be met, and the only response, right, is that he's set the bar too high, we're to be frustrated, we're to be angry. But then lastly, he says he kept reading, and that this truth 
the truth, the kind of love found that God put forth in Jesus is ultimately what changed his life. And I pray that that, I think this remark again, is just a way of kind of getting us going on such a difficult passage. Yes, how do you come to know the God of the Bible, that he is loving? Well, by reading the New Testament and not just repeating remarks that you hear on TV or wherever else. That all religions are not the same. And one of the main reasons it's not the same is because of the kind of passage we're looking at today. That it's an impossible ethic so far as we understand it in our flesh. And if we understand it in our flesh, it'll make us angry. But as we come to know the Lord Jesus and let him work on our heart, you say this is really what changes people. So as a way of getting into the passage, I'm going to start again, again in a kind of counterintuitive way. And that's with the last two verses, verses 35 and 36. Jesus says, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Can you see why we might start at the end with those last two verses? You see, again, if we understand this as just a kind of another, another ethical teaching like any other book that we would pick up. You know, we go to the bookstore and you pick up, here are 10 things to make you more popular and your life a bit better. Now go out and practice them. Say, if we put that on this level, it's never going to work. That our ethics as Christ followers always flow from what God has done in Jesus. Another way of putting this is that we must have a Christocentric ethic a Christocentric morality. How does the Christian behave in the world? Not by saying, oh, these are 10 things, just try a bit harder, but rather it's what God has done in Jesus. That's what he's getting at here. Remember, he's talking to his disciples. He says, how do you reflect your heavenly father? How do you reflect God the most high? How do we really do this well as sons and as daughters? Well, we do this, right? Because it's a good reflection of what God has done. Then notice that this charge, again, is to those who've been converted. That he's talking here in 35 and 36 about being sons and daughters, that we talk of God as our Heavenly Father. This means that this love command is given to those who've really been changed by Jesus. That we've really entrusted our life to him, that we see what God has done in him. And because of that, that we have been changed, that we're new creations, that we're new creatures, right? That we've been born again in Jesus. And so anytime that you deliver this to say, well, you unpack, love your enemies to someone who's not seen what God has done in Jesus and has not accepted it, say, yeah, it's going to make them angry and frustrated and it's going to be dismissed and held at arm's length. So I guess the, the point here is to see, don't we see that the strength and the power to do this impossible command flows from God to us? That everything in loving our enemies, as I said, is our, against our fallen nature. That there's nothing more unnatural than to love our enemies. You say, what would be natural? Well, I think it would be to love our friends and to hate our enemies. You say, that's the default position. Say, I'm going to be nice to the people who are nice to me, and I'm going to hate the people who hate me. That's the default position, but not so here, Jesus. He says, yeah, love your friends, but everybody does that. But the key to love your enemies. How do we get there? How do we get there in verses 35 and 36? And again, look at God's character. He's merciful. And he is kind and merciful to whom the ungrateful and the evil. You see, friends, we've got a whole world history to see this lived out. 
You know the remark made in Matthew's gospel in chapter 5, verse 45. You remember what it says? It says, God makes the sun shine on the good and the bad. He makes the rain fall on the, on the good and the evil. See, that's a way of referring to what we've always known that theologians have always called common grace. They say, why is it that you can have someone who curses God and yet still has a good life? Why is it that one farmer can love God and his crop will do fine and then another farmer who hates God and his crop just does just as well? You say, this is God's common grace. See, all of us, not just those who don't believe in God, but all of us at one time or another were enemies of God. You can just think, you pick up your Bible and you flip over to Romans 5 and you look at the categories that are used for every person before they come a Christ follower, that we're ungodly. That would go so far as to say that we're enemies of God in Romans 5.10. That they say, come into the world, every person comes into the world as an ungodly enemy of God. Say so it's not just one place in the Bible, but you could flip over a few books to Ephesians. Take a read of Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3. Say, we were all children of God's wrath. Say, we come into the world, we don't think anything of God, we certainly don't want to surrender to Jesus which are God's terms. We'd rather just go our own way. And the Bible's clear, and it makes sense, doesn't it? That we're ungrateful and evil people. We don't think about God. We're his enemies, and we're the children of God's wrath. Say, so how does that change? Well, it's changed by God putting forth Jesus. He put himself on display in the person of Jesus. He said, you want to know how much I care, right? That I've sent my son Jesus to show my mercy and my love, that all who would put their faith in Jesus can be right with me and reconciled and have a purpose and a promise ultimately and a destiny. Say that, friends, is what we mean by the gospel. Say the gospel is precisely the good news of God buying back his rebellious creatures, his rebellious creation, right? That God put forth Jesus to buy us back, to put us on right terms, that this is at the core of our being, if you're a Christian, that we were the enemies of God, worthy ungrateful, worthy unkind of verse 35 and the evil, and God was merciful to us. And if that's not clicked, in other words, if that's not accepted, right, if you're not a Christian, in other words, then the love ethic is only going to make you angry. It's only going to frustrate you. It's just going to be, well, another thing to try a bit harder, that it's an impossible thing. But if you're a Christian, it's really got to set in that the only way that this is possible is if I live out what's been a reality in my life, that I was the ungrateful, the unkind, the evil, and God did in Jesus what I couldn't do for myself, and that flows through me in order to carry out something like this. Another way of putting it is that we operate by a new principle, that this sermon on the level plane is making precisely that point. Say, Jesus' disciples, remember last week, operate by a different set of values. We're in a new creation, and it comes from what God has done in Jesus. So another way of putting this is that the gospel, when we talk about that, is not just an event in history, as important as that is. You say, we really do anchor the backbone of our faith in history with real time and real people, and that's significant in itself, unlike, again, other religions where history is so important, but it's much more than that. You say, what I've been describing becomes the pattern of our life every day. You say, what these commands have in common is a kind of selflessness, right? They say, I'm not the center of the universe, that it's not about me today, but it's about what God wants to do in my life to show forth what Jesus has done. That's the new pattern and the new principle 
Say, that's the motivation and the power to do this. So that's why we've started at the end. Say, how can Jesus give this command? Well, don't you know this is what God has done in Jesus? And when that's true for us, then we can better understand the new principle. So the strength to love comes from what God has done in Jesus and no other way. Second point to make here is I think, well, let's strike more at this word love. You say Christian love must be unpacked. See, I can't think of a more dangerously pliable word in the English lexicon than love. You can imagine an alien coming down and say, well, you hear somebody say that they love cheeseburgers, that they love their grandmother, and that they love their spouse. And you say, well, that's a very interesting word. What could that word possibly mean? And uh, as it happens that the language the Bible was written in Greek was uh, much better at, at having different words for love meaning different things there's a word for romantic love there's a word for brotherly love there's a word for the kind of love that you have for um, uh, you know those around you in a club or something but here we have the word agape in other words what Jesus is saying when he says love your enemies he's not saying be filled with warm feelings for your enemies say that doesn't happen say that's not the way that it works anymore you say we have that saying falling into love and falling out of love if, if that's the case then how can Jesus make it a command it must be something higher we could put it like this say don't let's not confuse biblical love with like Jesus isn't asking us to like our enemies to become buddy buddy with them say there are people we genuinely do not like that's not what he's saying what he's saying is this kind of love is a disposition and an attitude to act in a certain way. That biblical love is about behaving in the kind of way uh, that wishes the best upon another person, that does all you can that's good for the other person, that it's firmly anchored not in the feelings and the sentiments, but it's anchored in will and it's anchored in action, selfless action. And what does Jesus say? Notice in verse 32. He says, you know, if you love those who love you, what good is this? That this is a purely naturalistic love. Why? Because it's self-referential. Can you see that? Well, why do people lend to others? Well, they lend in order to, you know, build credit, that they think there's going to be something about that. Say, if I am kind to those who are kind to me, that this is going to encourage me socially, and I'm going to have a better network and so forth. All of that is self-referential. Say, it's a purely naturalistic ethic. Say, of course it's good to behave altruistically to those close to me. But what is unnatural? And what is being called for here is to behave altruistically, to wish the best upon, to behave in such a way that it seeks the good of those who are our enemies and those whom we expect nothing in return. In fact, maybe even those who could never give us anything in return. I like the way that Bishop Ryle says this, is the great 19th century bishop of Liverpool. He says that the Christian love is unselfish, disinterested, and uninfluenced. So that's the real difference, isn't it? Say so the naturalistic love, if you will, the thing that I'm inclined to do and the ways that I'm to behave, it's easy to have those in a self-interested kind of way to make my name better, to become more popular, the very thing Jesus had cautioned about last week. Say so that's very easy. But I need to exercise the kind of love that doesn't keep an eye to self, that there's not going to be a kickback, that I've not been pushed to do it, Say, it just flows out of who I am. It flows out of that gospel story that's been true for me every day. I've died to that. I've died to myself. I don't want to live for myself. I want to live for Jesus. That pattern, he's given me everything. I was once an enemy. He's raised me up. That pattern is what we live out every single day, that gospel pattern. 
And then in line 30, verse 31, Jesus gives us what's arguably the greatest ethical statement of all time. In case we're confused as to, you know, what to do or all this is maybe a bit too philosophical, he lays down a very practical principle that comes to us as the golden rule. Say, many, as we start uh, these first weeks of school, I bet that many uh, a teacher in not even Christian settings has this rule on the wall, right? As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. The golden rule. Now, I remember in graduate school that this was subject of much debate, that it was quite um, common, actually, to be in the ethics courses or in the New Testament courses and to see how innovative is Jesus with this line. And it is true that you have uh, a number of echoes of this in thinkers before Jesus. You have a version of it in Confucius and in all the different philosophies, but there's one major and very important difference. So yes, a version of the golden rule is found in other world religions before Jesus, but you know what they all have in common? That they're all put in the negative. See, every time we see this prior to Jesus, it always is a version like this. What you don't want others to do to you, don't do to them. Say it's universally in the negative form. What you don't want done to yourself, don't do to others. That in other words, you can obey that version of it by being completely passive. Say all I have to do is kind of go through life, and if I'm not uh, mean to anyone, that I just kind of ignore uh, everything, and I just kind of remain quiet and stay steady, then I fill this great ethical principle uh, that is a version of the golden rule. You say that's not Jesus's way that he makes it much more difficult. He makes it positive. As you wish that others would do to you, do to them. You see how Jesus puts love, again, not in the point of a feeling or an emotion or warmness on the inside or liking them, but he anchors it. He says you must do, act positively. You have to be active. And I think here how many young people have grown up thinking, well, you know, that Christian, you know, that's just boring. It's, it's this old thing that my grandparents and previous generations got nothing for. You say, what an adventure and what a difficult challenge the Christian, far from being something stale and off to the side. You say it's a real challenge to act, that there's something to do every day, to act positively, to think about other people, right? Put yourself in their shoes to think about this behavior and then to do and to act. They say that's the love command of Jesus, not to be passive and just do nothing, but rather to behave in such a way that's action-oriented to bless those and to reach out to them. Then Jesus, notice, how do we understand this again by a word picture? Who, where can we get an example of this? Say, well, it's in Jesus himself, right? In these gospels that we read. Say, think of again, Romans 5, right? God demonstrated his love for us, right? While we were still sinners, God put forth Jesus. You say, love is a sacrificial giving. You notice what Jesus will do in several chapters. If you flip forward to Luke chapter 23, you're going to notice that Jesus on the cross, you remember what he does? Those who are crucifying him, you can imagine those who are around there and there's, the blood is flowing and Jesus is being crucified. What's he say? He says, forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. In other words, Jesus demonstrates love. He practices love and this transforms people. Say love again is not an emotion. It's not about romance. 
It's not about feelings, falling into it or out of it, as if it's some kind of pit. Say, love as Jesus would have it, to love your enemies, this command is to behave in such a way, to act in such a way, to have the disposition to wish best upon even those who have caused us the most pain. That's Christian love. So again, how do we understand this? It flows from God to us, always that way. That's the power. Christian love is a disposition to behaviors, not just a feeling. And then I love really the series of who we're to love, these kind of more specifics. Then notice how love becomes a way of disarming conflict. You know, what really dismantles the code of the vendetta? Say the code of the vendetta is what governs a lot of people's lives. You get me, I'm going to get you back. And not only on a personal level, but this is actually how a lot of governments operate. Say, look at certain areas of the world, the way that foreign policy works. Say, you get us, we'll get you back. Say, how does the code of the vendetta, it can so easily spiral out of control. Who's going to break that spiral? Well, Jesus says, well, my followers, my true disciples are the ones that break that spiral of the code of the vendetta. And he brings up a number of categories, doesn't it? Look at verse 28. He says, my followers, those who curse you, so those who say horrible things about you, those who abuse you, you know what you're supposed to do? Pray for them and be kind. So those are tough truths, aren't they? You say, some, think about somebody who's abused you, somebody who speaks terribly to you. you. Say, it's clear here what we're to do. We're to pray for them. And what I found is that when this happens, as hard as it is, when I'm really angry with someone, I've been insulted, I've been slighted, that my pride is hurt, that when I pray for them, it actually is very hard to be mad at them. Have you noticed that? That when you pray for someone, that you pray that they're lost, that they don't know the Lord Jesus, that they're facing an eternity separated from God and separated from the Lord Jesus, just say, Lord, they're, they're in a bad place. I pray for them. Help them to come to know you. Change their life from the inside out, not in a self-righteous way, but pray that they would do that just as they, that, that God has done for us, that when we're insulted, we respond by praying and with kindness, that you can imagine a world like that, that when we're reviled, that we speak with kindness and we pray. That when we're insulted, we pray and we bless, we speak well of. Now, how about victims of violence? Verse 29, the first part, the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other cheek. You say, again, we opt for pacifism. Now, I want to be careful here, right? There have been pacifist sects of Christian followers over the years, that there have been those, and we're not advocating uh, complete political pacifism here. Why uh, don't want to get too far off the tracks here, but um, we have to weigh that against, you know, loving one's neighbor, and sometimes the best way to love one's neighbor is to intervene, but here I think Jesus is saying that when there's an act of violence against you, that, that your, your default mode, right, ought to be that of pacifism, that you're not your own, that violence is going to escalate, it's a little bit like that line, those who fight with the sword will die by the sword, you say we all have seen violence spin out of control, how much better right to say be passive in that and to try to de-escalate the violence and then how about that third category 29b what about when we're robbed so when somebody's stolen some of our stuff well what does jesus say well that's an opportunity for us to be generous you know again i love that scene in les miserables right that transforms jean valjean's life 
that when he plunders, that the priest responds generously. And that really is the start of the great, the great transformation. I like the way Matthew Henry, the commentator, says, how much better, right? He tells those reading his material, those Christians, he says, how much better to be the robbed than the robber? You say, what did Matthew Henry mean? He said, well, this stuff we can't take with us. And the person who robs is ultimately going to be judged by God. That when we Christians are robbed, that we're to respond in a generous way. Now, I know there's an objection here, isn't there? You say, well, if we did this all the time, we would be, I mean, we'd be a plundered people. I say, I think that's true. See, I, I don't think that now, you know, you're, some might be listening to this and you're not a Christian. Say, well, I'm going to take advantage of those Christians because look at what their book tells them to do. We have to remember who this address is given to. It's given to the real committed disciples. Say, when these unfortunate and hopefully rare things happen to us, when we're insulted, when we're victims of violence, when we're robbed, say, when those things happen, we're to react in a way that shows love and charity. Say again, what is our natural, that is our sinful nature way of responding? Say, when I'm insulted, that I'm going to insult back. When I'm hit, I'm going to hit back. When I'm robbed, I'm going to take my stuff back and probably a little bit more. Say, that's the way I want to behave. Jesus says, no, we must be different. If you know me, we must be different. We must show that we don't take ourselves that seriously, that we're selfless people, that we put our hope in Jesus, that it flows out of him. So now I want to think about you and me. Think about who these enemies in our life are. Now, for some, you're hearing this and you... Think about your past. You think about horrible things that happened in your past that you've been violated in some way. You say, how do you respond? Say, if you just hear this and say, try a little bit harder. You got to love them. You got to feel it. Say, that's the wrong way. Say, wait a second. What has Jesus done for me? And can that flow out of me? And might I respond in a way that's different than, than I would if I didn't know Jesus? You know, others of us, we get very mad at the political commentary one direction or another say i know this this time say just get so angry we say go so far as to say that person is a real enemy say when that happens we got to check ourselves say wait a second what does the lord say he says behave altruistically towards those people pray for them to know jesus say want the best for them how can we be channels of his grace that's how we're supposed to act how about those who mock us right oh give me a break you christians are the problem these days you know that's all we have going on here surely you're not one of those those who mock us say how do we respond well again with kindness with christian love and christian charity and do i think that this kind of way of behaving transforms people's lives i do I think it's not just about disarming conflict in the hope of winning friends. I'm not saying that. I think that, too, would be self-referential. Some have reasoned that way. Well, we need to love those who are cruel in hopes of, of, of you know, winning more friends. And, and that's, See, that's not what Jesus he said. Just we must behave differently when these things happen in our life because it shows what God has done in Jesus. Now, a final uh, word here on this topic, and that's some, again, an objection comes, say, well, aren't you know, this fulfills the greatest suspicions of people when they think about becoming a Christ follower. I mean, look at this weakness. I mean, who wants to be this kind of person that's picked on and beat up and robbed? You say, isn't this a, a position of weakness? I, no thanks for me. And I would argue this, say, yes, uh, we are all very weak as God's creatures. But to live out this ethic actually, I think, portrays a position of strength, or strength not of our own, but the strength of Jesus. 
say it's much easier to respond to insults by insulting and to violence with violence and to being robbed by robbing. You say, that's, that's easy. You say, what's very hard, what shows great strength and serenity and self-control and all the high-mindedness that we long for as Christ well, say, really the kind of ethic that Jesus likes, lays out here, say, that is the high-minded road. That is the position of strength and his strength coming through. Far from being a sign of weakness to say, this is the model that we need to go forward, and this is the model that changes people's lives, as it did Sam, Solomon, and many others. Can I make one little note as I'm talking about love disarming conflict here? You know what I've found time and time again? Is that the harshest critics and the cruelest people uh, often have a lot of pain in their past. You know, I've read a number of biographies of atheists and was greatly... Um, Enlightened, I think is the word, by Paul Witz. Uh, Paul Witz is a sociologist, psychologist at NYU, now emeritus for many years, eminent psychologist there. And Witz is very interested in psychology and religion, and he wrote a book called The Faith of the Fatherless. And you know what Witz does is he looks at all the lives of the famous atheists, and he pinpoints how many of them had sad experiences as young men. Horrible, cruel things, being abused, being taken advantage of and he makes the connection to say that oftentimes the fiercest critics of what it means to be a Christian are those who have a lot of pain in their life now some say well here he goes he's making excuses for people who do bad thing I don't think it's making excuses but it does help us I think sympathize right as the golden rule would help us to think about others and, and, and ethics beyond ourselves say this is the avenue of Jesus to say think of others to exercise grace, to love in a way that's a love of a different kind, that this becomes a great weapon, right? The weapon of love. The title of the sermon is the weapon of love, that when we have confrontations in life, when we're disappointed in life, when we're mocked, that we have this great weapon, the weapon of the Lord's love that's been demonstrated to us and lived out. Now, one final point here before we wind down, that we've now spent a couple of weeks in this sermon on the plane been all kinds of attempts over the centuries to say well I just think this this bar is too high um, nobody can do this and you say that's absolutely right that nobody can do this and the sermon itself that is Jesus is speaking himself uh, causes us in a, in a kind of boomerang effect to come back to him say yes this is impossible how in the world am I ever going to live this out you say it's only by God's grace that all of us, if we study this, desperately need God's grace. We need a Savior. We realize we fall short of this standard. And in order to live the lives that we're called to live, that we need him every day, not just on a one-off, but every day. The sermon exposes us and shows us how much we need him. Friends, if you're non-Christian today, and you're listening to this, I love that we now have the ability to say non-Christians, I like getting notes, and you're thinking about this, say you're a non-Christian. You say, maybe, yeah, you know about romantic love, and that word's everywhere. You think about romantic love, but not this kind of love. You say, you know, I really would like to know what it's like to hear about, to know unconditional love. You say, can you see that's in Jesus? That God's the one in Jesus who loves unconditionally as we come to him. Say, that's the love that we need. Say, that's the way forward. And you might be saying, well, I, I really need something beyond just what you're picking up in the book. Say, try a bit harder. Just love those who love you. And, and try to win friends and become more popular. Say, you need something deeper, something more motivating. Well, well, here it is, to love your enemies. Nothing like it. And maybe today's the day we say, I do want to surrender to Jesus that I've been an ungrateful person. I've not thought about God. 
but I need his mercy and I need Jesus today. Others of us, we've been, you know, you're a Christian and we just uh, feel great conviction when we read this, don't we? Say, I don't love my enemies, that I behave just like I do in my normal, natural nature oftentimes. That I see the political commentary and my blood pressure goes up and I wish ill of that person and somebody mocks me and I mock them back and I'm, I'm quick to respond uh, to, to maltreatment and all that. Say, well, today I say, maybe, Lord, I need to rely more on you to do this. That I must behave in a way that the world doesn't when bad things happen to me and when I'm plundered. Say, when I'm insulted, I want to respond by prayer and kindness. That when I'm a victim of violence, that I want to opt for passivism and show that there's something deep at play inside my very soul. And when I'm robbed, that it's an opportunity to be generous. Say, otherwise, I behave just like uh, everybody else. It's a charge, right? I need God's strength and I need his power. So again, this impossible command to love our enemies, it's going to frustrate us if we treat it like any other ethic. It must come from God and what he did in Jesus to us. That Christian love is not a feeling, but it's a disposition to act, to do, to live actively in the world, and how much more exciting that is. That this kind of love disarms conflict and really is salt and light in the world, and that this sermon itself exposes us and flings us back to God's grace yet again. So may we be this kind of congregation, may we go forward to love our enemies, to think about who our enemies are, and to show um, there's something different about us based on what God has done. I'll pray. Lord, we don't often probably think about enemies, but I think maybe we could just go through the times that we've been hurt, the times we've been mocked, or those who've maybe stolen a lot of money from us or taken advantage of us, and now we just can get so frustrated with one another and to see, to enter into what Jesus has laid out here. That we're to love, to behave altruistically, to wish the best upon, to behave in, in the best interests of those who are enemies. Help us to pray for them. When these things happen, I pray that any onlooker would say, you know what, that, uh, that person behaved really differently when that terrible thing happened. May it be so. And if anyone's watched this and they're far from you, Lord, I pray that they would cast themselves upon uh, your mercy, that you would um, give them that new birth, and that you would use their lives and ours to expand your kingdom. For Christ's sake, amen. Ever be on 
kindness makes us whole Shoulder our weakness And your strength becomes our own You're making me like you Clothing me in white Bringing beauty from ashes You like your bride Free of all the guilt And rid of all the shame Known by your true name And it's why I sing Your praise will ever be on my lips Ever be on my lips your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. Your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. Your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. You will be praised. You will be praised with angels and
love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him in this is love not that we have loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. May we be a church by not only loving, marked by not only loving one another, but by loving our enemies by, him, by his uh, strength. That what he's done in Jesus, we live that gospel out each and every day. Lord, we need your strength. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and abide upon each of you, until we shall meet again, or until our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ, comes, now and forevermore. Amen. Jesus.